Hey, this is Brent Jensen. You're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. A few episodes ago, I talked about the origins of Motley Crue, how Nikki Six formed that band, and I also spent some time talking about the tale of how Nikki Six was allegedly replaced in the band in the early 80s by a guy named Matthew Tripe, and how this had developed into a conspiracy theory that people still talk about today. Now that got me thinking about some other controversial conspiracy type stuff that's happened in music and today I figured I would examine the details of another much talked about conspiracy theory. This one from the early 90s. The proposition that Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain did not commit suicide but was perhaps murdered. Let's start around the time Kurt Cobain and actress and whole singer Courtney Love met. The precise date that they first met is up for debate, but the general events in popular accounts are pretty similar. Michael Azarad's authorized Nirvana biography says they met on January 21st, 1989 in Portland at a nightclub called Satyricon, when Nirvana played a gig there as an opener. Love saw Cobain perform, they talked briefly after the show, and Love developed a crush on him. Others have said that Cobain and Love actually met almost a year later at the same club, but at a different Nirvana show on January 12, 1990. An entirely different account comes from an associate of both Cobain and Love named Everett True, who in his book disputes the claims that they met before 1991, saying that he himself actually introduced the couple at an L7 show in Los Angeles on May 17, 1991. Regardless of the date, all agree that Love indicated her interest but that Cobain was indifferent and aloof with her. Cobain kept his distance from her after they met, agreeing to dates but then cancelling and ignoring love because apparently he didn't want to be in a relationship. Cobain himself said in an interview that he was intent on remaining a bachelor during that time, but he knew that it would be a struggle to avoid love because of how much he immediately liked her right after they met. Cobain had already known of Love based on her role in the film Straight to Hell that had come out a few years earlier, and despite his best efforts to maintain his life as a single man, by late 1991, Cobain and Love began to spend a lot of time together, eventually developing a pretty strong bond, their drug use serving as the foundation for that bond. Nirvana wrapped up a tour in early February 1992, and then a few days after that, on February 24, Cobain and Love got married in Hawaii. Love wore a satin and lace dress, and Cobain wore his pajamas, because, according to him, putting on a tux required too much effort. Dave Grohl was one of eight people who attended the ceremony, and Love would say later in an interview with The Guardian that she was warned not to go ahead with the marriage to Cobain by a large number of people, one of those people being Sonic Youth's Kim Gordon, who, according to Love, said that if she married Cobain, her life would be destroyed. Love said that she loved him and wanted to be with him, and that it was her understanding that it was not Cobain's intention to do that. When Cobain and Love were married, Love had already been pregnant. Their daughter, Frances Bean Cobain, was born on August 18, 1992, Shortly after the birth, some controversy ensued based on the couple's known drug use. Love had admitted to using heroin in a 1992 interview with Vanity Fair, saying that she wasn't aware that she was pregnant when she was using. Later, 
Love claimed that Vanity Fair had misquoted her, igniting a media frenzy. Cobain and Love's relationship was always fodder for tabloid attraction, but after the Vanity Fair article was published, they were interrogated by reporters and journalists about whether their baby was born with a drug addiction. In fact, the Los Angeles County Department of Children's Services actually attempted to take away their baby on the basis that Cobain and Love were unfit parents based on their drug use. Love would later say that as soon as she learned of her pregnancy, she quit heroin immediately. One more thing on that topic. If you look at the very creepy cover for Nirvana's lithium single, you can see the sonogram image of an as-yet-unborn Francis Bean included in the artwork. Cobain's health had been an issue throughout most of his life. He claimed to suffer from a persistent and intense undiagnosed stomach condition. He also had chronic bronchitis. His relationship with drugs began when he was 13, when he started experimenting with marijuana, which he would continue to use through his teenage years and into his adult life. But that wasn't it. Cobain was known for his insatiable appetite for any kind of drug, or anything that would render him intoxicated. He took a lot of LSD and consumed any drug, according to Nirvana bassist Chris Novoselic. Cobain was also a heavy drinker and even abused solvents. One of Cobain's cousins spoke out about his depression, citing a family history of alcoholism, mental illness, and suicide, and said that two of her uncles had killed themselves using guns. Cobain first started using heroin when he was 19, working his way up the drug ladder with a local drug dealer who had previously sold him oxycodone and less powerful drugs. Cobain's full-fledged addiction to heroin happened towards the end of 1990. Cobain claimed that his heroin use was a way of self-medicating to ease his stomach pain. But people close to him offered a very different explanation. Cobain's friend of many years, Melvin singer Buzz Osborne, theorized the opposite effect, claiming that Cobain's stomach pain was more likely caused by his excessive heroin use, saying that Cobain fabricated the undiagnosed stomach condition as a means of justifying his heroin habit. Eventually, Cobain's drug use would begin to affect the band's touring in support of the Nevermind record, resulting in Cobain's nodding off constantly in various situations from the effects of heroin. Before Nirvana had been invited to perform on Saturday Night Live in 1992, Cobain passed out several times during a photo shoot before the show. When talking about these incidents later to biographer Michael Azarad, Cobain confided that no one else in the band challenged him on his drug use, let alone spoke to him about it. Cobain believed that his fellow band members and management team thought he may die, according to Cobain, quote, at any second. In July 1993, just before a performance in New York City, Cobain suffered an overdose of heroin. Now, this is crazy. Courtney Love was on hand, and instead of calling an ambulance, she injected Cobain with naloxone, which is a medication used to block the effects of opioids to try to reverse the effects of the overdose and revive the patient. And she did. He regained consciousness and went on to play the show with Nirvana. And no one was the wiser. In early 1994, Nirvana was on a European tour when Cobain was diagnosed with bronchitis and laryngitis in Munich, Germany. 
The next day, he flew to Rome to receive medical treatment, and on March 3rd, he was joined by Love. The next morning, she awoke to discover an unresponsive Cobain once again. This time, Cobain was immediately rushed to the hospital, and he remained unconscious for an extended period afterwards, having overdosed on a combination of rohypnol and champagne. Cobain was released from the hospital after five days and returned to Seattle. Love would later state publicly that this overdose was Cobain's first attempt to kill himself. Just over a week after that, on March 18, 1994, Love called Seattle police, claiming that Cobain was suicidal, having locked himself in a room with a gun. Police arrived at the residence and confiscated some pills and several guns from Cobain, who insisted that he was not suicidal, but rather that he had locked himself in that room to hide from Courtney Love. Exactly one week later, on March 25, 1994, Love organized an intervention for Cobain, made up of 10 people he knew very well, friends from Nirvana's label and musician friends that he was close with. When Cobain learned of the purpose of this gathering, he lost his temper and began insulting everyone before locking himself in a bedroom. Eventually, however, Cobain would concede by agreeing to participate in a detox program at a recovery center in Los Angeles that would begin on March 30th, 1994. During his stay, there was no indication that Cobain was in distress of any kind or that he was in a suicidal state. The staff at the facility had not been advised of Cobain's history of depression, nor of any prior suicide attempts. He spent most of the time speaking with counselors about his drug abuse and state of mind and playing with his daughter, Frances. This would be the last time that he ever saw his daughter. The following night, Cobain was on his way back to Seattle after advising that he would be stepping outside to have a cigarette, but in actuality, escaping the recovery center by climbing over a six-foot fence after apparently having joked about how ridiculous it would be to attempt to do so earlier in the day. He had taken a taxi to Los Angeles Airport, and apparently in his flight back to Seattle, he sat next to Duff McKagan of Guns N' Roses, as recounted in McKagan's first book, It's So Easy. McKagan went on to say that despite Cobain's personal hatred for Guns N' Roses, and in particular his hatred for Axl Rose, Cobain seemed happy to see him. McKagan later stated he knew from, quote, all of my instincts that something was very wrong. Cobain failed to tell anyone of his departure from the recovery center, and as a result, most of his family and close friends were unaware of his whereabouts. In early April, Cobain had been spotted in numerous places around Seattle, and on April 3rd, Love hired a private investigator named Tom Grant to try to locate him. On April 8, 1994, an electrician who had arrived to install a security system at Cobain's home on Lake Washington Boulevard discovered Cobain's body. The electrician initially thought Cobain was sleeping and reported seeing no visible signs of trauma until he noticed the shotgun pointed at his chin. A suicide note was discovered soon after, addressed to Cobain's imaginary childhood friend, Boda. The note is conflicted declaring that since age seven, he had been, quote, hateful towards all humans in general, but then saying, quote, 
only because I love and feel sorry for people too much, I guess. Just a few lines later. He concludes the note with peculiar appreciation. Quote, Thank you all from the pit of my burning, nauseous stomach for your letters and concern during the past years. A high concentration of heroin and traces of diazepam were found in Cobain's body. The coroner's report estimated Cobain died on April 5, 1994, meaning Cobain's body had been lying there for days. A public vigil was held for Cobain at a park at Seattle Center, drawing approximately 7,000 mourners on April 10, 1994. Love read portions of Cobain's suicide note to the crowd at that gathering, crying and chastising Cobain. Towards the end of the vigil, Love distributed some of Cobain's clothing to people who had stuck around. Nirvana drummer and future Foo Fighters frontman Dave Grohl believed that he knew Cobain would die at an early age, saying that, quote, sometimes you just can't save someone from themselves. In some ways, you kind of prepare yourself emotionally for that to be a reality. Cobain's foster father, Dave Reed, said that, quote, for Kurt, it didn't matter that other people loved him. He simply didn't love himself enough. Now, Kurt Cobain's death has long since been a topic of fascination and public debate. The Seattle Police Department claims that they receive at least one request per week to reopen the investigation. A lot of people think that Kurt Cobain did not commit suicide and that he was in fact murdered. Tom Grant, the private investigator employed by Love after Cobain's disappearance from the recovery center, is one of those people. Grant was still working for Love when Cobain's body was found, and he was given access to Cobain's suicide note by Love, and he used her fax machine to make a photocopy, which has since been distributed everywhere. Grant claims that after studying the suicide note, he believes it was actually a letter written by Kurt Cobain announcing his intent to leave Courtney Love, Seattle, and the music business, not a declaration that he was going to kill himself. Grant thinks that the few lines at the very bottom of the note, which are separate from the rest of it, if you look at the note online, very easy to find, are the only parts that really sound like a suicide note. He believes that those lines are stylistically different from the rest of the letter, suggesting that they may have been written by someone other than Cobain. The official report on Cobain's death concluded that Cobain in fact did write the note, but Grant has a problem with the fact that the official report doesn't make note of this distinguishable difference at the end of the note, and that it should have been examined more closely. Now, Grant even goes so far as to say that he consulted with handwriting experts and that they support his position on this. After this assertion came to light, other experts got involved, and results from their examinations varied. Dateline NBC sent a copy of the suicide note to four different handwriting experts. One of the experts concluded that the entire note was in fact in Cobain's handwriting, and the other three said that the sample was inconclusive. Another television series, Unsolved Mysteries, also got involved. Their expert claimed there was difficulty in drawing a conclusion 
because the note being studied was a photocopy and not the original. Here's another interesting piece of information. In March 2014, Seattle police developed four rolls of film related to the case that had been left in an evidence vault undeveloped. There was no reason provided as to why the rules were not developed during the initial investigation. According to Seattle police, the film was from a 35mm camera, and the photographs showing the crime scene and Cobain's body are much more clear than the Polaroid images initially taken by the police. A cold case investigator was instructed to look at the new film, but he concluded that Cobain's death remained a suicide in his view. The photos in question were later released by the police department one by one, weeks before the 20th anniversary of Cobain's death. One photo shows Cobain's foot next to a bag of shotgun shells, one of which was used in his death, and another displays Cobain's arm, still wearing the admissions bracelet from the recovery center he escaped from in Los Angeles before returning to Seattle. A filmmaker named Nick Broomfield investigated Tom Grant's claim that Cobain was actually murdered in his documentary called Kurt and Courtney. He and a film crew visited a vast array of people associated with Cobain and Love, including family members of both, as well as some of the couple's former nannies. The most interesting visit was to the leader of shock rock band The Mentors, Eldon Hoke, who referred to himself as El Duce. He claimed that Courtney Love offered him $50,000 to kill Kurt Cobain. El Duce also claimed that he knew who killed Cobain and offered the name Alan, but offered zero proof to support his claim. Strangely enough, that would prove to be El Duce's last interview, as he died days later, after reportedly being hit by a train. Broomfield's perspective after conducting all of his interviews was that he had failed to come up with enough credible proof of a conspiracy, saying that Cobain likely did commit suicide, and that there was just a lack of caring for him on Love's behalf, that she had moved on emotionally, leaving Cobain to his own devices. The 2015 American docudrama Soaked in Bleach details the events leading up to the death of Kurt Cobain and also explores the premise that Cobain's death was not a suicide, as the story unfolds from the perspective of Tom Grant. In response, Courtney Love's legal team issued a cease and desist letter against theaters showing the documentary. And that was that. So there you have it, folks. It would seem to me that this was just a suicide committed by somebody who clearly was in significant pain, but you can draw your own conclusions based on all of these bizarre events that unfolded and this very unfortunate and very unnecessary loss. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen. Till next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Suffering, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.